Bible, and let's go to Zechariah chapter 13. We're going to look only at uh, verses 7 to 9 this morning, and I think you'll find it to be a, a fitting prelude to the Lord's Supper that we'll share here in a, a few minutes. Uh, this passage will end on the new covenant relationship that we have with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. So, as you're listening, let these words prepare you to eat together. Well, let's first read them, beginning in verse uh, 7 of chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Why don't we pray together? Father, your grace and mercy are incredible. They are worth singing about together. They are worth celebrating in in song and praises to you. They are worth giving thanks for all of our days. And I pray that this morning would just be another reminder here from Zechariah 13 of your incredible mercy towards us. It would be another reminder of your extravagant love for sinners. The sword that was due us has been quieted because of his death. Lord, enrich our hearts again this morning by the Holy Spirit as we walk through this passage. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen. So this is a very uh, fitting passage for the life of our church, and not just because we're taking the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, over time, you know, I've, I've talked with many of you. I, I hear your struggles. Um, some of you, you know, why you believe that Jesus' death forgives you for your sin, you struggle to believe still that... God isn't angry with you anymore. You're tempted to believe that there must be some wrath still left for you. And so your obedience and your praying and your doing stems from a fear of punishment and not from a place of rest and peace and thanksgiving and joy in God. And others of you have encountered some very hard trials and suffering in the last few weeks. You've received news that has greatly saddened and maybe even angered angered you for a while. And you're having difficulty seeing the purpose of it all and whether God really has your best interest at heart. And so you're asking, how can this be love? And others of you need a good reminder of the relationship with God that you've been saved for. That 
We're not just saved to do for God. We're saved to be with God and enjoy Him now and forever. Zechariah 13 will speak to each of us. And the way I've chosen to lay it out this morning is really the way it unfolds here in three main parts. Redemption, refinement, and relationship. Redemption, refinement, and relationship. First, I want us to look at redemption. Verse 7 depicts our redemption. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Many of us are familiar with uh, Tolkien's epic, The Lord of the Rings. And one of the climactic scenes in The Return of the King is when the riders of Theoden arrive to fight for Gondor. And just before the attack, King Theoden rides before his men and he summons them with these words, Arise, arise, riders of Theoden. Fail deeds awake, fire and slaughter. Spears shall be shaken, shield be splintered, a sword day... A red day, ere the sun rises, ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor. Theoden summons his men to war. What we're getting here in verse 7 is a similar summons to war. Awake, O sword. Only the king in this case is the Lord of hosts himself. It is God the warrior. And he doesn't summon an entire army. He summons his own sword to war. Quite a few times in scripture, God's sword functions as a symbol for his wrath. To awake his sword is for God to awaken his wrath. It is for him to unsheath his sword and to bloody that sword against his enemies. And now in the larger context, uh, it makes sense that he would awaken his sword. I mean, in Zechariah 11, he calls for the sword to strike the arm of the false shepherd who is not caring for his people. In chapter 12, all of the nations are gathered against God and his city to make war. In chapter 13, the the false prophets, they are exposed for what they really are in the land. There's plenty of reason in these chapters for God to waken his sword, to pour out his wrath upon his enemies. But I want you to notice something really, really important. Verse 7 says that God awakens the sword against someone who doesn't deserve it. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, or a better way that might be translated, against the man, my companion. What? Who's this? My shepherd, my companion, if he's your companion, God, why did you awaken your sword against him? 
It's the worthless shepherd back in chapter 12 that deserves your sword, not your shepherd. It's the nations who are gathering against you that deserve the sword, not your companion. What's going on? What's going on is this. Before God awakens his sword against the world, he awakens it against his own son. Before God awakens his sword against the world, he awakens it against his own son. This is an Old Testament picture of our redemption. We know who the shepherd is. Zechariah is pulling from the prophets before him. We see in places like Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37 and Jeremiah 23 that that this shepherd is the one who is expected to rise up. He is a king in David's line. And the New Testament knows the shepherd's name to be Jesus Christ. God's only son. John 10, you read earlier that Jesus is the good shepherd. On top of that, in Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus actually quotes explicitly from this passage and says that it's talking about him dying on the cross. And this comes right after Jesus shares the Last Supper with his disciples. We're taking the Lord's Supper today. We're back in Matthew 26 where with the the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus tells them, drink the cup for this is the blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And they go out, they sing a hymn together. And then Jesus says this, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered which is straight from the rest of Zechariah 13, verse 7. The shepherd is God's son, Jesus Christ. The striking and the sword here is referring to the cross. Jesus is the one who stands next to God. John 1.18 even tells us that he is the one who has been in the bosom of the Father. But God the Father entrusted the Son with a mission. And the Son willingly agreed to accomplish that mission. The Father sent, the Son came, the Son put on flesh so that God would summon his sword against him in our place. The good shepherd received what the bad shepherd deserved, but not because of sins that were his own. If he's so close to God, as close as being called my companion, God's equal, then why did God strike him? It apparently wasn't because God found anything in him worth punishing. He struck him as a substitute. He struck him in the place of others like you and me who did deserve it. In fact, the Hebrew behind the word strike here, strike the shepherd, is also found in Isaiah 53, verse 4, when God offers up the suffering servant as a sin substitute. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, or struck by God and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53 has taught us how to read this passage. He was not pierced for sins that were his own. He was not struck for sins that were his own. He was pierced for our transgressions, our iniquities. And this is a picture of our redemption. God is holy, and as holy, he must awaken his sword against his enemies, enemies like you and me. We are enemies because we were born in sin. We were like these other nations, gathered against his anointed one, wanting to cast off the cords from us, get him out of our life. We don't like his rule. We were born with a rebel nature. Ephesians 2.3 says that makes us children who deserve wrath. We deserve the sword of God. And that sword is coming against the whole world in the future. But in his mercy, God also summoned his sword against Jesus so that anyone who trusts in him now could escape the sword in the future. That is the gospel. That is the good news. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ is not just a bad ending to a failed ministry. It's not just the results of unjust politics. The cross is God's own design. In love, he ordained a day to summon the sword against his own son, but to do it in the place of sinners. We call this propitiation. Jesus satisfying the wrath of God against sinners. And this death was so sufficient, so complete, so perfect so fitting to God's holiness that for all who trust in Jesus, God's sword has been quieted. When God raises his sword against people like you and me, we cannot satisfy it. We cannot quiet that sword. He must send someone who can. This is why Jesus must be not just man, but also God himself. Only God can quiet God's sword. There's even a picture in Jeremiah, I think it's in Jeremiah 47, where the people are experiencing God's sword and they're crying out, Would you just quiet the sword? Put it back in its sheath. And the question comes back, how can it be quieted when God Almighty has given it its charge? This is how it can be quieted. The death of Christ. Even before you were born, God's love already provided for you what His holiness demanded from you. His holiness demanded that you pay a penalty for your sins. But His love offered His most costly possession in your place, His only Son. This is part of the reason why Romans 5.1 can say that, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. His wrath against you was completely settled in the death of Jesus. He's no longer angry with you, believer. He delights in you. He's 100% for you if you are united to His Son. If there's a sword that he raises in your life, it will not be against you. It will be against all things that attempt to keep you from him. Brothers and sisters, do you truly believe that God has no wrath left for those who are in Christ? 
Are you tempted or are you tempted to believe a false gospel? Another gospel that says God is still angry with you. A false gospel that says there's still more punishment that you must do to yourself in order to assuage God's anger. The cross just wasn't enough. A false gospel that says obey in order to avoid punishment instead of obey because Christ already took your punishment. Or do you see God as a demanding, impatient, angry father just waiting for an opportunity to smack you? How will you come to the table this morning? How will you come? Will you come afraid of God's condemnation? Will you come seeing this table for the gift that it truly is, a reminder to you that Christ bore your condemnation in full and there is none left for you? There is, there, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the Lord's Supper is for. It is to remind you that God has no wrath left for you. He awakened His sword against Christ in your place. There's a brother I knew who once fell into immorality. He had an affair with his... Um, he had an affair and was keeping it hidden from his family, walking in the darkness instead of the light. Eventually, though, he had to face the consequences of his sin. The Lord exposed him and he repented, even publicly before uh, the church. But as he's telling me this story from his past, there was something he said that stuck with me. The sweetest morsel he had ever eaten came from the Lord's Supper that night when he confessed his sins. When he ate, the Lord reminded him of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, that there was no wrath left for him. There was only peace with God for him. When you have peace with God, you don't care what other people think. You're free to confess, free to walk in the light, free to eat at the king's table. That doesn't mean we continue in sin that grace may abound. We're well aware from 1 Corinthians 11 that God's discipline, that God's discipline can be severe when we eat and drink on our own terms. There is a call for self-examination, but that self-examination is never apart from the work of Jesus Christ. It is never apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Grace abounds to even the chiefest of sinners. For those of you in Christ, the King invites you to this table this morning with his sword in its sheath. Come and eat. Second, we see our refinement. We see our refinement. Look at the rest of verse 7. All the way to the first part of verse 9. It says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land, declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One third shall be left alive, and I will put this third into the fire and find them as one refined silver and test them as gold. 
it is tested. Now we saw a minute ago that Jesus quotes this first part in Matthew 26, not just as a reference to himself, but also as a reference to his disciples. When he was crucified, all his disciples would scatter. Even his most faithful ones, like Peter, would forsake him. And so with this still in our minds, you know, we come back and we read verse 7 and, and we say, whoa, you know, wait a minute. What's all this stuff now about God turning his hand against the little ones? Is that the disciples? I mean, what's going on here? Well, Zechariah is building on the remnant theology of the prophets before him. And he's using a lot of the same language. So, for example, uh, Isaiah 1 Isaiah chapter 1, verse 25, we find the same exact wording of God turning his hand against his people. And the way he is turning his hand against his people is by sending them into exile. Okay, and it was through the discipline of exile that it says he would smelt away their dross. So in that sense, it's functioning as some kind of discipline He will smelt away their dross. And so, yes, a severe act of discipline, but its purpose was to make his covenant people righteous once again. He calls them, he's going to do this to turn them into a righteous city, a faithful city. So it was to purify a remnant. And then Ezekiel 5 is another example where you get these people dividing up into thirds. Uh, Ezekiel 5, uh, he has to shave his head. And then he divides up the hair um, into thirds, and one third is burned up with fire, another third, you know, he has to hit with the sword, another third he's supposed to throw to the wind, but among that third he's supposed to hang on to some and, and bind them to his robe. And the act is symbolic of the exile. God would use the discipline of exile to purify a remnant. For himself. Some would be cut off, but there'd be a few that are snatched. They're bound to the prophet's robe, right? They're bound to God's word. They're bound to God himself. Some would be cut off, but a few he would keep for himself and put them through further trial. So one of the ways God purified his people so that the faithful remnant stood out was by putting them through the fire of exile. Zechariah is drawing from this same imagery, but applying it to a future people. Like the people of old experienced, the future people would have to endure a great refining process, something like exile. Some would be cut off and perish. The trials will prove that that they never really belonged to God. But then there would be this last third, this remnant And because God loves them, he puts them through the fire. We've seen this remnant. He's mentioned this remnant before a few times in in Zechariah. And and because he loves them, he's going to put them through fire. But notice that it's not so that they perish. Verse 9 instead uses a remarkable illustration. It says, God will refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. So in order to make... I don't know if you've looked into metallurgy or things like this. Uh, 
in order to make precious metals like gold and silver shine, you have to remove the impurities. And the way you remove the impurities is to put it in the fire. The fire exposes and burns off the impurities. The metal is tested then. Its quality is then judged after the fire. And if it's not good to go, back into the fire. If there's more impurities, back into the fire. And this process gets repeated until the refiner can see his reflection in the metal. We saw in chapter 13, verse 1, that one of the ways God purifies us is through the fountain that he opens. But another way he purifies us, brothers and sisters, is through the fire. We need both the fountain and the fire. This is why you and I face trials and suffering in this exile of a life. Our refiner wants to see his reflection in you. He doesn't just want wrath removed from you. He wants his son reflected in you. But that also means fires. Not the fires of hell. No, Jesus took care of that on the cross. We've, been, we've covered that. But the fires of trial, affliction, tribulation, suffering, exile... You see, Jesus' disciples, they didn't stay scattered. Jesus rose from the dead three days later. And what do we see him doing? Gathering his remnant. He's gathering his remnant. Even Peter, he restores. And later that remnant grows to 110 more. And then again to 3,000 more. And then you even get Gentiles joining this remnant, getting grafted in as Paul preaches the gospel to them. Of course, throughout the New Testament, this is the church, but a church that must walk through the refiner's fire. The apostles were very familiar with this remnant theology and God's refining work in the church through trial. But likely the best example comes from First Peter, which is written to the elect exiles, even pulling from this Old Testament imagery for the remnant. But First uh, Peter uh, 1.17 says that the present time is comparable to exile. He even uses the word exile. The kingdom's fullness hasn't come yet, so in some sense we're still in exile. And in this exile, the remnant has trials. But listen to what he says about these trials in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Various trials will test the genuineness of our faith, just like gold is tested by fire. 
The encouragement, though, is that faith in the midst of trial is more precious to God than gold. Okay, gold is going to perish. Faith is going to result in praise and glory and honor forever. So yes, we won't see all of that reward until the return of Christ. We will never get in this life all of the answers that we'd like to have for our trials. But we can hold on to this. If you're united to Jesus, the tested genuineness of your faith will abound to praise and glory and honor. In other words, there's a goal for these trials. And that goal is glory. That goal is reward before your Father. That's Peter's message. What's 80 years of trials up against an eternity of glory, praise, and honor? And something else we can remember in trial is this, and this comes from the first point that we covered. If Jesus Christ is your propitiation... Your wrath, satisfier, then none of the trials you face in this life, whether it's a migraine or cancer or Lyme or persecution or poverty, none of it comes from a God who is still angry with you. He is not punishing you. For those who are in Christ, it comes from a Father who wants to see his face in you. Isn't this what places like Hebrews 12.10 teach us? That God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Your suffering, your various trials, they're not meaningless. God, the refiner, has a purpose for them and that purpose is to make you more like Jesus. He wants the dross removed. He wants the unbelief removed. He wants the idols displaced by a love for himself. He wants your dreams to look more like his plans. He wants to see himself in you. And that's an incredible love. Richard Phillips put it this way. God employs extreme measures to win our hearts fully to himself. He demands the most fervent devotion and he labors in our hearts until our greatest joy is to bask in the knowledge that God has cherished us to himself. I remember Rachel telling me shortly after she was diagnosed with MS, God knows what I need to make me more like Jesus. That's not stated lightly. It comes through tears. But God knows what I need to make me more like Jesus. If God is sovereign, wise, and good, then He knows what we need to make us more like His Son. I want that kind of faith when I encounter trials. And many of you have demonstrated that faith as you've walked through various trials. We're going to sing a song in a little bit by John Newton... It's called, I Asked the Lord. I want you to consider the words of that song in light of this passage, in light of this refinement. Finally, let's look at our relationship. 
our relationship. We've seen our redemption. We've seen our refinement. But both of these things are meant to serve a greater goal. Our relationship with the Lord. Look at the rest of verse 9. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. I want to point out several things about this relationship. I won't mention everything, but a few things. First off, I want you to notice the dependence on God. It is a relationship of dependence on God. How fitting is that in a passage about refinement by fire? There is also dependence on God. We cannot go through the various trials of this life in our own strength. At least not in any way that pleases God. We desperately need God. In fact, the trials He gives, they they make us more dependent on Him. They bring us to the end of ourselves and they keep us on our knees. They draw us nearer to the Father in our helplessness. John Calvin put it this way, The discipline of the cross is necessary so that earnest prayer may become vigorous in us. The beauty of this relationship, though, is that God answers when we call upon Him for help. When we depend upon Him in prayer, He promises to answer us. What an encouragement to keep coming to Him. What an incentive to keep depending on Him. And the God of the universe says to His children, I will answer you when you call on Me. Would your life be one that's characterized by this dependence on God? And if not, have you forgotten that you have access to Him through faith in Jesus Christ? Have you let pride creep in, pretending that you don't need God, that you, that you can whip life without God? God's new covenant people depend on Him. They see and recognize their helplessness. They cry to Him. They pray because they have this incredible access to the God of the universe who has saved them and who answers them. For those of you whose prayer life has dwindled, I would ask do you seriously consider the promise of an answering God here. When you come to this supper, reconsider the relationship God won for you in the death of His Son. He listens to your requests. He answers them. I see it every week as I pray through the membership role in this church. God doesn't always answer in the way I expected or when I want Him to answer or even in the way I think He should answer. But He is always answering prayers. Every week. Consider His promise to you in this text. I will answer you. If no prayer life exists for you, I would ask that you seriously consider whether you are part of God's people at all. You may not be praying because no true relationship actually exists with God. And if that's you, I just want to tell you, go back to verse 7 and see the sword that he awakened against Jesus in your place. And repent And be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will know this relationship. 
He will pour out His Holy Spirit upon you. And Galatians tells us when He does that, not only are we adopted as sons, but we cry, Abba, Father. This relationship with God is also personal and intimate. He says they are my people. The Lord is my God. There's a sense of belongingness to one another. In fact, this is, co- this, this is covenant language that's used elsewhere uh, many times in, in the scriptures. And it's God's way of showing his personal devotion to his people and their devotion to him because of the work of grace in their hearts. But if you look up places throughout the Bible where this same language appears, uh, they, they are my people, the Lord is my God, uh, you find that this relationship is quite intimate, personal. And I'll give you a few examples. Leviticus 26.12 uses it alongside God walking, this imagery of Him walking among His people, which suggests a reversal of the fall when He walked in the garden with Adam. Deuteronomy 26.18 uses it alongside God calling Israel His treasured possession. Usually we think of, I mean, God is a treasure. God is our treasured possession. But did you know the scriptures also speak of us, his covenant people, being his treasured possession. Ephesians 1 and 2 calls us his inheritance. It's incredible language. Hosea 2 compares this relationship to a marriage. God takes this once unfaithful people and he betroths them to himself as a bride to a husband. And in that context, these words become like wedding vows. And even within Zechariah 2, verse 11, this relationship comes as a result of God coming to dwell in the midst of his people. It's personal. And it's intimate. We need to hear this as well. Because there can be a tendency to turn God into a mere object of study. When he has revealed himself as one to be personally loved, cherished, enjoyed. J.I. Packer puts it this way in his book, Knowing God. He says, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of Him. We find in ourselves a deep interest in theology. We read books of theological exposition and apologetics. We dip into Christian history and study the Christian creed. We learn to find our way around the scriptures. Others appreciate our interest in these things and we find ourselves asked to give our opinion in public on this or that Christian question, to lead study groups, to give papers, to write articles. Our friends tell us how much they value our contribution and this spurs us to further explorations of God's truth so that we may be equal to the demands made upon us. All very fine, he says. Yet interest in theology and knowledge about God And the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not all the same thing as knowing Him. He goes on, Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing, as is all direct acquaintance with personal beings. 
It is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with by him as he takes knowledge of you. You can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. And a simple Bible reader and sermon hearer who is full of the Holy Spirit will develop a far deeper acquaintance with his God and Savior than a more learned scholar who is content with being theologically correct. The reason is that the former will deal with God regarding the practical application of truth to his life, whereas the latter will not. This relationship is personal. It is intimate. Finally, this relationship is also communal. It is communal. That is to say, this covenant relationship isn't one that's just between God and me. It is between God and us. The whole covenant community is saying, the Lord is my God. As someone else once put it, Christianity is not a me and God religion. It is always us and God. They're even praying together as one people. It's they will call and I will answer them. There's a good reason to come this evening to pray together. Right? I mean, we showed up in force last Sunday to learn about doctrine. Praise God for that. But let's also plan to make prayer a similar priority in the life of this church. Prayer together. We need to hear things like this also in a culture that feeds us so much individualism and social media outlets that are constantly fostering more individualism regardless of how connected you may feel through Facebook and Twitter and whatever else. You're still alone if you're not with. Yes, God saves individuals, but those individuals are part of a people He has given to Christ. They are bound together in Christ under a new covenant. They all share in this relationship. And that's also part of the reason that we come together again at this table this morning. It's why we come together every Sunday, like they did in the book of Acts, to gather as as one people in a corporate setting. But we also come to share in the table, the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10.17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, For we all partake of the one bread. The cup of blessing that we bless, the bread that we break, it's a participation in the blood and body of Christ that belongs to the whole redeemed community. And that's why we celebrate it together. So let us all eat together with these things in mind. Because of the struck shepherd, Jesus Christ, we have experienced redemption. That redemption has then set us apart for God to be refined by fire. Not because God is angry with us, but because God wants to see his reflection in us. And all of this is serving our dependent personal communion, uh, communal relationship with God until Jesus comes again. So let's eat together in, in that light.